This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett in for Simi Sarah. Well, we know technology plays a big role when it comes to the workplace. So many people working remote or doing some kind of hybrid, partially remote, partially perhaps back in the office. It has made for a better work-life balance for a lot of people. But what about using technology when it comes to terminating an employee's employment? Well, my next guest is here to talk about that. Janet Candido is an HR expert and founder and principal principal of Candido Consulting Group. Janet, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What are the concerns then with companies using technology and using it specifically for that reason to terminate employment? Well, it's cold and impersonal. And one of the one of the things I always say is that you're letting somebody go but you need to do it in a way that preserves their dignity. Um, and it's difficult to do that when you're doing it over over Zoom or Microsoft Teams. It's cold, it's impersonal, um, and, and, and you don't have the physical proximity, so it just makes it that much worse. I mean, it's never a, a comfortable situation, whether you're sitting across the table from somebody or, like you said, on a Zoom call or a Teams call. Uh, so what makes it worse, though, to to do it when you're doing it on a screen? Well, you, uh, what I've seen is sometimes it's done and then the, the, the person will say, well, if you have any questions, let me know. And then they, they end the discussion and you're, you're leaving that employee or ex-employee as it is just sort of stunned and reeling from the news, There's, it's difficult to be compassionate and empathetic when you're doing it in such a, a remote way. When they're physically present and they're, they're right there, There's you can inject more warmth and compassion into the process. Does it change or is it different, do you think, if we're talking about a layoff where there's a dozen employees or it's a group of employees that are being laid off as opposed to one person who perhaps is being terminated because of their job performance? So I'm not a fan of the group layoff scenario. Um, I still think it should be done one-on-one. And, you know, at the very least, get the supervisors or the managers involved to do it one-on-one. So, no, I don't think there really is a difference in that. Uh, Even, uh, yeah, and I I guess it would be more difficult, too. I'm not sure. I'm sure it does happen, but you don't hear as much of people being in a group Zoom call and being told, oh, you're all being laid off. Although, again, I'm sure it it does happen. But that seems like it's even uh, even less personal, at least with the one-on-one call. It's just two people, or maybe there's an HR person as well. But at least it's a, a more intimate call, not this giant group call. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's true. It's the giant group call that is so uh, disturbing as a trend, and it has happened. I mean, uh, I think it was Better.com fired 800 people over a Zoom call. Um, so, yeah, it has happened. One-on-one is definitely better, but um, in-person is the best way to do it. And I was I remember hearing as well when all the recent changes with Twitter and some of the contractors, they found out through media reports and found out when they tried to access their email or they tried to connect to the 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 server that they use or connect using the connect, the, um, the connection that was only for them, then found out they'd been cut off, uh, which I would imagine is even worse than being let yeah. off during a Zoom call just to wake up one day and you no longer have access. Absolutely. You know, this is a hard thing for employers to do. Nobody enjoys doing this. So if there's an easier way to do it, uh, they'll latch on to that for that reason. But again, you just have to remember that you're, you're telling somebody that they've lost their source of income. In some cases, their, their identity is tied up with the job. So if you keep that in mind, you're less likely to do things that are frankly cruel. Finding out that you've been let go because you read a media report is really cruel. Is it partly because to we might not be having this conversation, say, five years ago? Is it because we've become so comfortable in scenarios using technology and things like the Zoom calls and the Teams calls that they've become a way of operating in the workplace and doing business that it just kind of naturally uh, businesses kind of shifted to the Well, if we can work this way, then we can stop working this way. I think that's true. Certainly. I think that's true. I also think, though, it's because it is it is a difficult thing for an employer to terminate somebody's performance, to to face them and say, this is what's happening. So if they can find an easier way to do it and doing it using technology is definitely easier on the employer, not on the employee, but it's certainly easier on the employer. It's a little bit more arm's length. So absolutely, they're using the technology. And when you consult businesses and explain to them why it's not a good idea, what kind of a response do you get? Mostly it's, oh, we never thought of that. Oh, I didn't think of that. You know, they're looking at it from their point of view. This is a task I have to do. And how can I get it done? And when I point out to them, like, think about what you're actually doing to the individual And think about how you want them to react, because that's the other thing they need to keep in mind. Other employees who have not been terminated are going to judge you on the basis of how you handled this, how you treated their coworker who lost their job. So think about the employee who's about to become an ex-employee and think about all the other employees and how they're going to view this when you decide how you're going to get it done. In most cases, I've been able to convince them to do it in a more compassionate way. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Janet Candido, thank you so much for your time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, there is a possible change in the works when it comes to airline travel. And our contributor, Raji Sohal, is joining us to talk more about that. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. Yeah, so phone calls are going to be allowed on EU flights in 2023. And now this means that European carriers are going to be allowed to uh, enable the 5G technology on planes from next year. So that's alongside, you know, the mobile data. So sometimes people will be able to use that patchy Wi-Fi to make calls. This is uh, really amping it up. And Jill, when I first read this, I think uh, I think a lot of people would have this response to, which was just very uh, knee-jerk. I kind of flipped out and thought, no, that that's terrible because it's bad enough when you're on a flight and you're, you know, subject to overhearing your seatmates get to know each other, those conversations. I find those conversations the most worst, but I can't help but tune in, you know. <laughs> and now to think that you might be overhearing people's uh, work calls, their personal calls, maybe they're going to FaceTime people. And something just seems to happen when people get on the phone with their volume. They just lose perspective, don't know how loud they're being, and it can be so disruptive. So to, to imagine all of that happening on the airplane is uh, it's a game changer, maybe in the wrong direction. But I wanted to challenge myself to see the other side of this, which is that you know, not everybody travels, gets on an airplane, a flight for leisure, right? Loads of folks are getting on a plane because they got to work. And if you get to make your work calls on those flights, you're potentially using that time really efficiently. So I, I do see that side of it as well. Yeah. And I get what you're saying too, about the volume for whatever reason, because it's really not different than somebody talking beside you, but you're right. When people get on their phones, for whatever reason, they're usually a lot louder and you're only hearing half the conversation too, which can also be a bit annoying. Yeah. And I think about when I'm on a bus or sky train and someone else is on the phone. Um, yeah, they are louder and you can't help but tune in. It's, it's work to kind of tune out even. They're more an animated, I find, when they're on the phone. Um, but, you know, I was once on the other side of this where I uh, had to travel a lot once for work and I was able to connect uh, to the Wi-Fi when United used to offer that for free. <laughs> and I remember getting tons of work done and thinking, oh, if only though I could make my phone calls as well. And so the phone calls were that one outstanding thing that I would do. I'd wait until we landed to get those done. But uh, boy, did I use that time efficiently. And so for people who want to really pack in their work, uh, this could be a game changer, I think. Yeah. And, and I also think, too, it's the people who behave poorly on planes that kick the seats, that let their kids watch movies without headphones on their tablet or whatever they're doing. People who are jerks on planes are always going to be jerks on planes and they're going to talk loud on the phone, whereas other people are going to talk quietly if they're going to use the phone. It's just going to be one other way uh, to find out who's the jerk on the plane and who isn't. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. A friend of mine who's a flight attendant once said that there are people who act like when they're on the airplane, that they're inside their home, you know, they take off their shoes, they'll clip their nails, that kind of thing. And then there's those that just are aware that they are, uh, you know, in a confined space with strangers. So I think you're right about that etiquette bit. All right. So we'll, we'll see what people think about that if they want to uh, weigh in and call the buzz line. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, later today, more than 1,000 pairs of women's shoes will be placed on the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery. And joining us to talk more about why this is happening is Tima Dickerson, Union Representative for the Women and Gender Equity Committee at the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Tima, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. I know you're you're at the location where this is going to be taking place a bit later today. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening? Well, right now we have there's seven of us uh, volunteers. We're unpacking a uh, large cargo van full of shoes. We're setting up our display, and um, we're definitely setting up the names of all the victims as well, so they can be honored and remembered today. And talk a bit, if you can, about how this idea came about and the whole concept of getting these shoes and placing these shoes on the Vancouver Art Gallery steps. So this uh, started 20, 21 years ago by Pat Kelm, who was a advocate. Um, and uh, she started this with the idea that all women have a pair of shoes in their closet that they no longer wear. And it would be something that didn't cost anything to, to set up a display and bring awareness uh, to the public of the, you know, how big of an issue that violence against women is. And she wanted to bring the focus on the victims and not the perpetrators. So this is how this all came about. Unfortunately, Pat Kelm's no longer with us, but um, we took over the event. Um, well, we, we kind of partnered with her and then after she passed unfortunately in 2017 we've continued on and just kept keep growing it every year and when you talk about that that it started more than 20 years ago and the fact that it is still necessary today that we still have so many women who are murdered women who are missing what do you think that that says about kind of the need for this type of memorial well, I don't think people are aware, well, a lot of the public aren't aware of how big of an issue this really is. Um, in 2021 alone, there was 173 women and girls that were killed by violence in Canada. You know, and eight, globally, it was 81,000 women and girls that were killed in 2020 um, by violence. And when you talk about that, too, that uh, I think you're right, we, we tend to cover, we've been certainly covering the protests in Iran and what's been happening in other countries, but do you think it gets enough attention or we spend enough time looking at what's happening right here in Canada? I, I don't think it gets enough attention. It's one of the largest uh, human rights um, issues and it's one of the least recognized with the memorial today, then, like you said, uh, setting up more than a thousand uh, pairs of shoes, is the hope that people will see these and, and stop and those conversations at least get started or those conversations happen? Yes, we've been really successful in the past of actually getting the public's attention and having them stop. It brings a lot of curiosity when they see all those shoes on display, even if they're not aware of what it is. So they do stop. They do ask questions and we do 
have the opportunity to engage in some really meaningful conversations and bring awareness to the issues. How long will the shoes remain on the steps? They'll remain on the steps until 3 o'clock, and that's when our event is uh, over, and then they get donated to women in need, all of them. Uh, which is pretty amazing, too, that all of these, uh, I mean, it is such a, a serious and, and somber ceremony and memorial, uh, but then that something quite positive or something good comes in that those shoes then all find new homes. Yes. Yes, definitely a positive spin on, on such a um, an emotional day of, of yeah. Uh, I know there's also been another display uh, or I mean, there have been several displays at the art gallery and it, it has long been a place uh, where people will gather and people will will put on displays. So are there any concerns that with some of the other memorials and sites that this will kind of get uh, uh, not lumped in, but this may, maybe won't get the attention it deserves specifically? Uh, no, we don't have any concerns right now. Um, other, we're on the Georgia Street side. Other than the beautiful big Christmas tree, there's there's nothing blocking us. Um, we will be very visible, and a lot of people walk through this area. So I, I don't think the other displays will um, take away from today. All right. And uh, you mentioned that you're there with some others right now setting up. Uh, it goes. Uh, it will be on display until 3 o'clock. Uh, when do you hope to have uh, kind of everything in place and the display ready so people can stop by and, and see things and, like you said, have those conversations? So we should be finished setting up before 8.30 this morning. And then um, we also have a ceremony at noon where we'll have some powerful speakers so that would be a good time for people to stop by too. All right, and speakers, and then and then so kind of an invitation. Then anybody who happens to be in the area or wants to come and learn more, noon is a good time. But but you'll be there throughout the day. Exactly. Anytime, come by and please stop and have a conversation with us. All right. Well, Tima, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. I know it is going to be a very powerful display on the steps of the art gallery. So thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us. Thank you for having us. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, that was a quick reversal, talking about a decision which originally told Salvation Army volunteers that they were not to be in front of BC liquor stores as part of the Christmas Kettle campaign. We've now seen a reversal of that. So joining us to talk more about how this all played out is Gavin Randawa, Divisional Manager of Marketing and Communications at the Salvation Army's BC Divisional Headquarters. Gavin, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you very much for having us on. Well, let's start back where you were told and volunteers were told they weren't allowed this year, even though this has been happening for years, to be in front of the BC liquor stores. What was the reason given as to why there was that change made this year? Yeah, so uh, not to speak on behalf of the BC Liquor Distribution Branch, but what they kind of shared in a statement was essentially that um, they were already sharing other uh, donation options for people this Christmas, and I believe... Uh, one of them was for the food banks, which is an organization that we obviously partner with in, in a lot of our work. Another one was for uh, a teddy bear uh, collection that they were doing at the counter. So the reason that they shared in their statement was that they didn't want to uh, give too many options to customers coming through. And uh, what we ended up hearing from a lot of the public and our support from the donors that the people really wanted to have their own choice and they wanted to see the Christmas kettle that they've seen there year after year back at, uh, at the outside liquor stores as they've always been able to. 
And so not too long after that story came out and that statement came out from the BC Liquor Distribution Branch about, uh, like you were saying, perhaps too many different groups. It wasn't too, too long after that. What happened that led to the reversal? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was just yesterday afternoon we got word that um, they decided to change their mind and uh, allow uh, the Salvation Army Kettles to to again be outside the stores and um, we're, we're very excited that they uh, led to that decision and uh, we know that um, a lot of our supporters and, and donors are excited to see that and we we're, we look forward to the opportunity to be there and continue this partnership again into the future uh, moving forward. So we're, we're thrilled with the news that they decided to change their mind. And did they tell you why? Was it the public backlash or people saying that they wanted the volunteers to be there? I, I think uh, a little bit what they said it was uh, there was a little bit of concern as well that they um, understood that it would have such a big effect on our Christmas kettle campaign and, and how much money would be raised and they realized that uh, uh, maybe they that decision inadvertently kind of was going to lead to um, some issues so they decided to uh, allow us to to be back there and hopefully that can help us to kind of recoup and, and collect as much as possible this Christmas as we as we aim to. How important is it or how much of the fundraising is having those volunteers at various places, including being in front of BC liquor stores? Absolutely. Our Christmas kettle campaign is our biggest fundraiser of the year. And we're talking about raising money that not only is for our Christmas programs, such as our hampers, but our year round. We're 365 days a year. We're feeding, clothing and sheltering those in need and helping others escape violence and addiction. And our Christmas Kettle campaign is vital to raise the funds for all of our programs and services that we operate. And for the public, it is one of the most common ways for people to donate and support the Salvation Army. They hear those red bells uh, and uh, ringing around Christmas time, and they know that's their opportunity to donate and help support our programs. And so um, red kettles are absolutely important and vital and we know that uh, a large uh, amount of our donations come from these locations or outside the liquor stores and and places like that or other businesses um, that we partner with the walmart's costco's safeway savons etc there's a lot of retail stores as well and um, and we're very excited that we could be back there again collecting donations again and i i know when the the reversal was made as well the bc liquor the distribution branch also recognized that they had told the, the salvation army they'd give it was quite short notice saying oh by the way we're not going to allow you in front of liquor stores this year uh, and then uh, as we know now they reversed that are you concerned at all in the future that there could be uh, you could be directed and told that that's not a place where you can be I, it, that's always Potentially conservative, we have so many great partnerships uh, around BC and across Canada that um, we rely so much on our, our partners and our organizations that support us. And with the Salvation Army, we're always, we, we learned that we need to be flexible and respond to whatever the outcome may be and whatever the need may be. Uh, whether that's us responding to in the natural disaster emergency services, it's whatever the uh, uh, biggest need is, is what, how we're going to respond. That's the same way when it comes to uh, where we're going to be available. When that original decision was made, we had to continue on because our Christmas kettle campaign had already begun uh, shortly after that, and it was time for us to uh, continue going. And we have our very hardworking individuals, the kettle coordinators working behind the scenes, and they're the ones making sure that we had uh, our Christmas kettles available everywhere that we could. I would say the one thing that um, 
we are really in need for right now is, especially with this latest decision and the change, is we need volunteers to help fill these kettle rules. Okay, what can people do if they want to volunteer? Absolutely. So for those who want to volunteer, and opportunities come from either individuals or families or groups or organizations. All they need to do is go to salvationarmy.ca slash volunteer, and there, there they can apply. And kettle shifts are one of the most rewarding ways to give back this Christmas season. It's a season to give again. If you talk to anyone who's had the experience of being at a kettlebell, it's it's such a fantastic feeling when you're there. You get to uh, see everyone come by, and, you know, either make a donation by cash check or now they could use their credit or debit card with our tip, uh, tip tap at Tap and Go Technology, and they'll be able to make their donation. And it's uh, it's such a great way to give back. It's a great way to give to your community, and uh, it's so rewarding to be out there. Uh, and especially now, as we're gonna reintroduce these kettle sets we're going to need uh, more kettle hosts uh, to help fill these positions all right so well gavin we'll, we'll leave it there and uh, hopefully you get enough volunteers but thank you so much for your time today thank you so much for having us this is mornings with simmy on 980 cknw well at this time of year every year we tend to see a lot of best of lists they are rolling out what about the best city there is another one of those and for more on that i am joined once again by show contributor raji sohal good morning again Hi, Jill. Yeah, this report out about the top cities of the world, you know, I always do take these ones with a grain of salt because a lot of them are chosen by things like magazine editors or travel editors, that kind of thing. This report is different. It's very comprehensive in its ranking because it looks at data in 24 different metrics, six different categories to decide these top world cities. And actually a Vancouver-based company is behind the report too. So a lot of city rankings focus on, I find the tourist factor, like, is it a good place for us to visit for 36 hours or a week, that kind of thing. And this report looks at so much more than that. Uh, It asks, are the cities um, desirable for locals, for visitors, for attracting business, new business? Um, Are they good places to work? So it goes way beyond just livability or a tourism appeal. And uh, for cities that made the top 10, we're looking at Barcelona, Singapore, Madrid, Amsterdam, Rome. I think no surprises there. The top four cities are Tokyo, New York, Paris, London tops the list. So Vancouver is nowhere to be seen in that top 10. In fact, Vancouver, Jill, is at number 69. And Chris Fair, who's uh, the president of Resonance, that's the company that compiles this report, he said 69 is actually a good position. Uh, yeah, it seems like, you know, it sounds low to when you think about it. But then if you look at all of the cities and like you said, all of the different markers they're going for, it's not a, a horrible place to be. No, not, not a terrible place to be. Here's Chris Fair talking about how there's a little bit of a difference between Vancouverites uh, or Vancouver's reputation versus reality. When we think about what makes the best city in the world is really based on attracting talent to a city, attracting companies to a city, or attracting visitors to the city. So we look at 24 different metrics grouped into six different categories to determine the overall ranking. And that's everything from economic factors, like the number of Fortune 500 companies, to the connectivity of the airport, to the weather and safety, to the number of nightlife experiences, restaurants, parks. Vancouver is one of the best cities in the world which is why I moved here. 
when I talk to people around the world and make presentations about best cities, I mean, I use Vancouver as an example of a city that's uh, reputation is probably better than the actual product from a performance perspective. You know, and there are other cities like Chicago, let's say, whose reputation is probably not as good as the actual product is in terms of what the data tells us. It's really interesting. Hey, Jill. In fact, that one stung a little bit because I think Vancouverites do like we can be a little bit smug about how beautiful it is here, about how we have the perfect weather. If you look across Canada, we do have the best of many worlds. I think a lot of people find that here, but uh, he laid it out there that Vancouver's reputation might be uh, better than the reality. Uh, yeah, not a big surprise there. It reminded me too of this wasn't Metro Vancouver specific, but a few years ago when the license plate motto was BC, the best place on earth. And when you talk about the smugness, <laughs> and I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, it, it's pretty, but have you not traveled anywhere else? So what are you comparing it to? Yeah. And another one is, you know, to be sure, affordability was was not the biggest factor on this list of top cities. And we see affordability slipping away from us in Vancouver. But you look at these other cities that top the list, London, New York, Paris, uh, they're not affordable either. Um, but one thing that I was thinking about when I was looking at those top cities and then looking at Vancouver at 69 was just culturally, it feels like those other cities have just tons going on you know they're busy they're bustling lots to offer and we're still having these debates in vancouver about whether there should be more big outdoor events you know mm -hmm. or whether people should be allowed to enjoy a beer at the beach without a fear of uh, getting in trouble for it you know but i think you, you can't really be a vancouverite unless you're proud to be from here so the smugness is real but one thing that chris pointed out to me was that uh vancouver has some growing to do and it needs in order to do that it has to attract big business when I think about Vancouver, you know, a lot of the attributes are, are really well known in terms of the natural scenic beauty. Uh, but there are some underlying things that we really need to focus on improving as a city, most of them related to um, economy and some of the economic factors in terms of as a place to do business. Um, you know, Vancouver underperforms relative to a lot of other global cities. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's well known that we're not uh, home to the largest number of corporate headquarters. Toronto and Canada is number one, you know, Calgary is number two. Um, so, you know, we're lagging behind Toronto, Calgary, and Montreal uh, in that regard. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's also some things to think about as it relates to, to labor force. And, and this is a challenge for all Canadian cities, you know, relative to other cities around the world where we don't necessarily have the programs in place um, that encourage and allow a broader and more diverse range of the population to participate in the workforce. And, and this is becoming a, a critical issue. As our population gets older, you know, we've seen that coming out of COVID that uh, industries of all kinds are struggling to, to fill uh, the roles and, and vacancies that they have. Yeah, Jill. And also there's something to be said there about attracting workers through, you know, having really big business in Vancouver, entrepreneurship, uh, some of those huge tech companies not making it tough for them to start up in Vancouver. 
then that also means you have to match people's salaries uh, with the cost of living because it's expensive to rent or buy here. So th they're complex issues, um, but I, I wouldn't mind it just as a proud Vancouverite myself if, if we could inch up from our 69th spot on this list to something uh, more respectable. Uh, absolutely. I, I think it's interesting, too, that when you look at the numbers, so they're saying Vancouver with a population of 2.4 million. So they're looking at Metro Vancouver. This isn't comparing because, I mean, you can't compare Vancouver proper when you mention some of the other cities, London, New York, Paris, Mumbai. Uh, Vancouver's population in the city itself is less than a million. So they're clearly looking at the region and how the region is is kind of how it compares to these other cities. Yeah, absolutely. And and the geography is important too, because if you're talking about just Vancouver proper, you're missing out on some of the other really beautiful areas to live elsewhere in, in uh, Metro Vancouver. Um, but I think also, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about Canada's openness to immigration to fill uh, some of the, the spaces, the gaps that we need in our, in our tech talent and that kind of thing. So, you know, governments are talking about this so it looks like there is an appeal to change that stuff and we're talking more again coming out of the pandemic uh, uh, increasingly about how to get our arts and culture up again get stuff happening get people out and enjoying the city together and uh, like you said maybe get higher up on that list who knows <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. The, interestingly, also, uh, one thing that the report mentions is how uh, diverse Vancouver is. This is something that, Jill, I forget sometimes and I'm reminded of when I do travel and I see and I visit cities where there is less diversity sometimes and I'm going, oh, wow. Yeah. Like it's become so uh, normal in Vancouver, in Metro Vancouver to recognize that people come from all over and uh, it's so appreciated that it's become more normal here too. Yes, it is certainly a lot of good things about the region. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, you've probably seen some Christmas lights up, uh, depending on what neighborhood you are in. Maybe you have those neighbors that go all out with the displays, so maybe a bit more subtle. This is a new report from BC Hydro, and it finds while many British Columbians are embracing some budget-friendly holiday decorating, there are still many of those mega holiday lighting displays. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Kyle Donaldson, Senior Media Relations Officer with BC Hydro. Kyle, good morning to you. Hi, Jill. Good morning. Happy holidays to you and all your listeners. <laughs> and to you <laughs> as well. It is certainly that time of year where we're starting to see more and more of the displays. But Hydro has put out some new numbers this morning. What are we seeing as far as are people going a bit crazy with the mega lighting or what are they doing? Yeah, so we decided to uh, take a look at the holiday decorating uh, styles of British Columbians right now as we are just, what, less than three weeks away until uh, the official holidays. But our research finds that a majority of British Columbians are facing the cost pressures this holiday season with, you know, rising interest rates, uh, inflation on the rise, the greater cost of goods and services. And uh, it's leading some people to actually tone down their holiday decor at home this year. So about a third of our respondents to our study are showing that they're going for the minimalist approach this year. And the minimalist approach would be people who plan to put up, you know, one, maybe two strings of lights outdoors outside their home 
And they might even use like an electronic decoration or even an inflatable decoration. Uh, about one in five of our uh, of British Columbians are, are not decorating at all this year. And I would say that I don't know about you, Jill, but from uh, from just driving around Vancouver in the last couple of days, it is still early December. But I'm actually surprised there there seem to be a lot fewer lights this year, in my opinion, than in previous years. I'm not sure if you've noticed the same. Yeah, I was thinking the same. Even I think was it all the years kind of blend together now. But but in the height of the pandemic, I think more people put up lights because it was a little bit of joy and something to be bright and nothing else was going on, really. And maybe people have scaled back from that. Yeah, exactly. And one thing we're also finding, too, is that we, we have the other end of, uh, of the game here with people who just go all out for the holidays. Uh, and maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a special club for people that also like to go all out for Halloween. But anyway, our, our mega decorators uh, are not going to let any budget constraints stop them from celebrating this year. Uh, we're expecting that these displays will go up by about 50% compared to where they were just a couple of years ago. Uh, and about 15% of British Columbians identify as being mega decorators for the exterior of their home. And uh, the definition of a, a mega display for us would be at least 10 strings of lights and, uh, and or multiple electronic or, you know, those, those inflatable decorations outside of your home as well. What kind of price or cost are you looking at? If you are one of those mega decorators and you have all the lights and you've got the inflatables maybe, and you have, like you said, an electronic, maybe you've got a train set up or something like that. If you've got a mega display, how much are you going to notice that on your bill? Oh, you'll definitely notice that. So a couple of things that we're uh, using this as an opportunity to talk to our customers about is, you know, even just by switching to uh, an LED strand of light versus an incandescent strand, because, you know, you can still purchase incandescent lights and some people are still using them. Uh, If you switch eight strands of incandescent lights to uh, LEDs, you can save about $40 over the holiday season. Those LED holiday lights, they also last 10 times longer, and they come in a variety of shapes and sizes and colors, and they're obviously a lot brighter than incandescent bulbs as well. Also, if you do have those inflatables, uh, you can, you can uh, you know, they're, they're easy to install. Uh, they don't really require a tool or a ladder, but uh, you need to have Santa Claus running 24 hours a day, seven days a week for when your neighbors are, you know, going out to walk their dog for an early morning bathroom break at 6 a.m. You could probably uh, uh, put a timer on some of these so that they can go off in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, even just running an inflatable 24 hours a day over the holidays, that can add $50 onto your electricity bill over the holidays. <laughs> and uh, there is something quite sad, though, and, and I get this, and I know a lot of people put them on timers, but those inflatable displays, there's something so sad when you see them in the morning and it's just Santa or Frosty crumpled on the ground and you got to wait for him to come back to life. I know. You know, it's funny. My, my mother lives in Victoria, and one of her neighbors across the street had this giant ghost for Halloween that was it was it was larger than the size of the house it was like probably two stories high anyway they had this thing going off 24 7 and my mom actually couldn't take the dog outside in the morning because he would start to go really mad at this ghost and wake up the neighborhood so she had to actually change her walking habit for for her dog for a couple of weeks there over Halloween but same thing same thing one other thing, too, I should, I should say, if, do you remember the uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation movie with Chevy Chase? Of course. So there's this, there's this iconic scene where Clark Griswold is 
proudly claiming to have installed over 25,000 light bulbs in that display, right? Yes. So we decided that we'd go and we'd maybe crunch the numbers to see what his bill would be. So keep in mind, this movie is from 1989. So LED technology wasn't available at that time. So those are all incandescent bulbs. So if you if you look at his electricity use, uh, he would have used about 19,000 kilowatt hours during the month of December. That's more than 20 times the average BC household would use in an entire month. Mm. And his bill would have been about $5,000 <laughs> over that six-week holiday season. So if he did it today, obviously it would be a much brighter display because he would have LED lights but his bill would be significantly cheaper as well. <laughs> I'm guessing yeah, there would also be a word of caution when you see the scene where he's got about 12 extension cords and he plugs yeah. them all together at the same time. Yeah, don't do that. That's a good tip, yeah. <laughs> all right, any other surprises with these numbers? Or uh, we, as we head in, we'll see uh, the same thing, kind of the mega uh, people that are, although that the 50% increase was pretty big. We'll have the mega decorators and people being a bit more subtle. Yeah, and another thing that I found interesting was even just the colors of lights that people are using outside of their home. Uh, about half of respondents say that they prefer to have the multicolored lights outside of their house. Uh, there's no uh, single color that is that is standing out. Uh, white is the most popular single color, but the least amount of colors that people are decorating with is, you know, strands of blue, strands of green, like those single colored uh, primary colored uh, people like variety, I guess. They, they like the multicolored lights the most. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, Kyle, thank you so much. Uh, interesting findings and good tips for saving a bit of money if you are putting up those holiday displays. Thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Happy holidays, Jill. Good to chat with you.